everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing fine. Um, it's not just me. It's been a weird week, right? Yeah, I thought so. Look, I'm going to level with you. I generally try to do weird, funny stories that have happened in the last few days or odd random thoughts that have popped into my head, but none of those really seem appropriate right now. So instead, I'm going to reach back many years and talk about the most embarrassing thing that has ever happened to me. If there are any kids listening, you, you shouldn't be listening, like ever, to this show. What, what, what are you doing? Um, go, go to bed. Anyway, this happened many years ago. I had been on a date with a young lady, and it had gone well. So we had had a bit of a sleepover, as it were. This was our first time spending the night together, and everything was new and exciting, and we were staying up late and talking, and everything was going really, really well. I got up to get a glass of water, and when I did so, she let out a pretty loud fart and was mortified. Now, as regular listeners to this show know, I pride myself on being a gentleman and as such wanted to put my guest at ease. As it had been a pretty long night and I had had a not insubstantial amount of abdominal exercise, I felt confident that I could outdo her performance in the field of flatulence. So, as I was standing, holding a glass of water, nude, in my studio apartment, I said, that's nothing, check this out, and farted. Or rather, attempted to do so. Yeah. It wasn't a fart. I shit on the floor. In front of a woman I had just slept with, after saying, Check this out. Naturally, I was horrified. She informed me that all color drained from my face, and I fled into the bathroom. All the while, she was laughing hysterically. So I had definitely diverted attention from the fact that she had just farted, because I am a gentleman, but at a cost that I had not anticipated. This girl and I ended up dating for a little while after that, but things didn't really work out, and I'm still not entirely sure that this story has nothing to do with that. Now, as you can imagine, this is not a story that I tell very often. In fact, I've only told it in front of an audience on one other occasion. I was doing a two-person comedy show that I'd written for myself and my comedy partner, Laura, and we needed to fill a little bit more time. I was a little apprehensive about telling the story for obvious reasons, but we needed to fill some time and I didn't feel like writing a monologue. So into the show it went. The show went pretty well. The story got a good reaction. And after the show, one of Laura's friends who had been in attendance asked me out on a date. We've been together ever since and got married about five years ago now. So what's the point of this story and why did I decide to tell it now? It's not that... Something that seems like a disaster can end up being something beautiful. I mean, this wasn't a real disaster. Nobody was in any actual danger. It was just a very embarrassing situation. 
maybe it's about the fact that we're all feeling pretty vulnerable right now, I think, and it's okay to talk about that. But mostly, I just couldn't think of anything else to talk about. And I thought you might think it was funny, and you might be distracted thinking about that one time I accidentally shit on the floor. Now let's talk about a comic book. Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Devin Tuhey. Skimble shanks the railway cat, likes dancing schedules and trains. To keep things perfectly miceless, he goes to quite great pains. Death would impair his plans, so when Donna comes he gives a hiss. He would not enjoy strangulation, but he'd not mind a synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, Devin. New Teen Titans, Volume 2, Number 16, January 1986. The Night Before. Written by Marv Wolfman, drawn by Chuck Patton, inked by Romeo Tangal, lettered by Bob LaPan, colored by Adrian Roy, and edited by Marv Wolfman. Teen Titan Roll Call Starfire, Jericho, Nightwing. That's all. Previously in New Teen Titans. When she was 12 years old, Starfire's dad, King Meander, gave her to a race of slave-mongering gassy space lizards in exchange for sparing his planet Tamaran the ravages of an intergalactic war. After years of horrific abuse, Starfire escaped and met up with the Titans. An indeterminate amount of comic book time ago, the spicy space princess returned to her homeworld to keep her evil sister Commander, who for some reason went by the objectively less rad than her actual name codename, Blackfire, from blowing up the universe. Starfire battled her stupidly pseudonym space sister and emerged victorious, apparently killing Commander in the conflict. Coriander's parents thanked her for her service, but told her that she was still banished from Tamaran because the farty space Godzillas she escaped from might come back and start some shit. A tearful Starfire returned to Earth. Then, a few weeks ago, the exiled princess received a surprising visit. Her parents had sent a dashing young space captain to inform Starfire that the war was over and she was free to return home for a visit. Hooray! Captain Karras, who I call Captain Papadopoulos on account of the fact that former football player Alex Karras once played a character named George Papadopoulos on the sitcom Webster, obviously, offered to give her a ride, and Starfire happily agreed. Nightwing came along because he and Starfire were dating, and Jericho invited himself as well because he really wanted to see some space stuff. Also, Cole was really creeping him out. Our trio of Titans commenced their cosmic commute, but Dick got the impression that Captain Papadopoulos was keeping a secret. Unbeknownst to our heroes, their journey was being monitored from afar by Starfire's not-so-dead-after-all sister, Commander. Oh, no! The reprehensible Regal Revenant was fomenting a rebellion in hopes of usurping her father's throne. Her younger brother, Reander, had recently joined up with the Omega Men, a group of swashbuckling spacefarers, and Commander planned on using the group as a cat's paw against her father's forces. To achieve this end, the would-be world conqueror enlisted the aid of former Omega Man, Oron. Oron was a sort of shiny reverse space Jesus whose mom was the bloodthirsty goddess Zahal, who insisted that her son spread her gospel by killing her enemies. Oran and Zahal had recently flipped their respective wigs, which made the murderously mommed messiah malleable to Commander's manipulations. 
The power-hungry princess proclaimed her intention to kill both the Titans and the Omega Men, and she and Oron shared a hearty, evil chuckle at the prospect. As her sinister sister schemed, Coriander arrived on Tamaran and enjoyed a joyous reunion with her royal parents. Unfortunately, this familial felicity proved to be short-lived, as King Meander revealed that he had an ulterior motive for summoning his daughter home. Did he plan to avert another war at the expense of his daughter's subjugation? Sort of. Damn it, Meander! The daughter-dealing diplomat informed our heroes that he intended to forestall an impending Tamaranian civil war by forming a strategic alliance with one of their southern neighbors, by marrying Starfire off to the prince of that region, Captain Papadopoulos! Gadzooks! Will this story continue in Omega Men number 34? Yes. Yes, it will. So, Omega Men Roll Call. Primus, a previously nondescript white guy who now has a spaceship's computer living in his brain. Green Man, a green man. Tigor, a tiger guy. Harpus, a winged lady who looks like the scary parrot from Zoobly Zoo. Callista, a space witch. Yinda, a pink-haired lady who hates getting her leg burned. And Reander, Starfire's younger brother. Previously in Omega Men number 34. The Omega Men were flying around in their spaceship headed towards Tamaran so they could drop Reander off when their old pal Shiny Reverse Space Jesus, Oron, showed up and started yelling nonsense at them. Then he burned Yinda's leg. Damn it, Shiny Reverse Space Jesus! She hates that! The Omega Men's ship started plummeting towards Tamaran. Shiny Reverse Space Jesus hopped down to the surface, appeared before Starfire, and was like, Hey, just a heads up. Your brother and his friends are about to crash into your planet. Also, they've gone all wacky and think me and my mom are bad now. You should probably try to kill them or something. Okay, bye! Starfire was like, Good to know, thanks. Then flew off to try to save her brother. The ship crashed into a huge temple, but thanks to Starfire's intervention, the damage was minimal and nobody got too hurt. Once they regrouped, the Omega Men were like, Shiny Reverse Space Jesus and his mom are bad now. Coriander was like, oh, okay. But secretly thought, uh-oh, my brother and his pals have lost it, just like my buddy Shiny Reverse Space Jesus said they would. Commander watched this on a monitor and was like, teehee. While this was going on, Tigor and Scary Parrot Lady were locked up in some kind of space jail or something on another planet. They seemed pretty bummed out about it. Back on Tamaran, Dick Jericho and Coriander went on being suspicious of the Omega Men. Then Shiny Reverse Space Jesus popped back up and was like, Hey everybody, wanna hang out? The Omega Men were like, Fuck that guy, he tried to kill us and burned our pink-haired buddy's leg. Let's attack him. The Titans were like, Looks like Shiny Reverse Space Jesus was right. The Omega Men are out of control. We'd better attack them before they hurt someone. Gadzooks! Will Commander's Machiavellian machinations lead to a patented superhero misunderstanding? Offset TM Tiny R in a circle. How will Dick deal with his girlfriend's unexpected betrothal? And will I figure out a way to mention that Tigor, the Omega Man who literally has cat's paws, is one of the only ones not being used as a cat's paw? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... Yes. Poorly. And I just did. 
The Omega Men and the trio of Titans who are on Tamaran start mixing it up as shiny reverse Space Jesus eggs them on, and Commander watches from afar, laughing maniacally. I guess Commander is zapping shiny reverse Space Jesus with some kind of energy beam that he converts into a sort of ambient murderous rage that has infected all the combatants. Both sides seem pretty keen on killing each other at this point. Starfire's gone from thinking her brother is a little loopy to being convinced that the dude she's fighting is an imposter pretending to be her brother. Everybody fights everybody. Space Witch has the power to make people hallucinate their greatest desire. She tries this out on Jericho. The Mutton Chop Marvel sees a vision of his dad, Deathstroke the Terminator. The apparition of the super assassin who uses 90% of his brain, but only 50% of his eyeballs, reaches out to his son and is like, Hey buddy, how's it going? I just swung by to say, I love and respect you. You want a hug or something? If you do, just speak up. At this point, Jericho figures out that something weird is up. Because his dad was there when his throat was slashed and knows he's been rendered mute ever since. I mean, seems to me like Slade showing up on an alien planet, or being emotionally available for that matter, are probably more unlikely than him forgetting his son can't talk, but whatever. The important thing is that Jericho is on to Space Witch's shenanigans. Joe uses his possession powers to commandeer Space Witch's body, and then turns her powers on shiny reverse Space Jesus, who has ramped up the ambient malevolence to 11 at this point. Everybody is about to murder the shit out of everyone else, when suddenly, shiny reverse Space Jesus sees a vision of his celestial mom, Zahal. The vision is like, Hey buddy, you know how I've been telling you to kill the fuck out of everyone for me? Well, forget all that. I like peace now. Let's go get an ice cream or something. As the mixed-up murder messiah converses with his hallucination, his emotional manipulation of our heroes subsides. Primus is like, Hey Starfire, let's stop fighting each other. You want to use our combined powers to sucker punch my confused former teammate while he thinks he's talking to his mom? Starfire is like, Sure thing. So that's what they do. Hooray? Shiny Reverse Space Jesus is like, What the fuck? I hate getting sucker punched with cosmic nonsense when I think I'm talking to my mom. Everything sucks! I'm out of here! And with that, Shiny Reverse Space Jesus teleports away. Our heroes apologize to one another for the Oron-induced misunderstanding, offset TM Tiny R in a circle, and compare notes. But one Titan is conspicuous for his absence. While his companions continue their post-conflict commiseration, Dick sneaks off to sulk. A few minutes later, Starfire finds him moping around in a nearby spaceship parking lot. The begrudgingly betrothed princess is like, Dick, I know you're pissed off that I have to get married, but it's not that big a deal. Right after the ceremony, we'll go back to Earth and pretend the whole thing never happened. It doesn't have to change anything between us. Dick replies, I'm still angry! Your dad's a real piece of shit who keeps bartering you away at the drop of a hat! Fuck that guy! Actually, both have pretty good points. Dick is done talking, so he turns his back to Starfire and dramatically throws himself over the hood of a spaceship to cry. Starfire isn't done talking, so she blows up the spaceship. Despite this excellent counterpoint, Dick is not finished sulking. He once again turns his back on his weeping girlfriend and mopes off into the sunset. Frustrated, Starfire blows up a nearby mountain, then flies off to talk things out with Jericho before whoever's spaceship that was comes back for it. Good call. Once back at the palace, a despondent Coriander 
begins confiding in her Titanic teammate, but they're interrupted by the Omega Men, who stop by to say that they're taking off to search for shiny reverse space Jesus, but Reandor is going to stick around for the wedding. On the other side of the planet, Commander holds a big pep rally for her insurgent forces and thinks about how stoked she is to take over the planet. Not just because she's evil and wants to kill her family, but also she's starting to think she'd be pretty good at it. A little while later, Jericho and his new pal Reander check in on Dick to see how he's doing. Turns out, not great. The aggrieved acrobat lashes out at Reander and tells him that Tamaran is a fucked up garbage planet full of jerks. Ouch. Reander replies, Sounds like somebody's angling for a tour of our planet's agricultural systems. Challenge accepted. Hop in this space car. Huh? Reluctantly, Dick hops in the space car with Ryan and Joe. Wait, he does? Back at the palace, a teary-eyed Coriander reluctantly prepares for her wedding, which I guess is happening pretty soon. She walks in on Captain Papadopoulos, who is talking to his girlfriend, Taryai. They aren't any happier about the impending nuptials than she is, but are willing to go through with the ceremony out of a sense of duty. Taryai is like, This sucks. I want to be angry at you, but I have so much respect for the fact that you're willing to marry and totally bone down with my boyfriend for the sake of our planet. You are one heck of a princess, Starfire. Wait, what? Who said anything about boning? I thought this was just ceremonial. Also, how bad is Papadopoulos at boning that his girlfriend considers Starfire a foxhole buddy now? Okay, foxhole buddy sounds like a euphemism, but I really didn't mean it that way. Anyway... After chatting with Taryai and Papadopoulos, Starfire changes into her wedding bikini. Her mom stops in as she's getting changed and is like, I know you're not stoked about this, but just remember, it gets really cold at night, so you guys are probably going to have to bone. Okay, let's go. Wow. Meanwhile, Reander is giving Dick and Joe their promised tour of all the rad farms Tamaran has to offer when he spots his evil sister, Princess Commander, holding her big pep rally below. The young prince is a little surprised, because they all thought Commander was dead. But he's not that surprised, because he's been living in a comic book his whole life and knows that off-panel deaths, well, those aren't hardly deaths at all. He pops a U-turn in the space car, but Commander sees him and blows up the vehicle. The three farm enthusiasts escape the explosion and free into the nearby jungle, but are soon caught by Blackfire's forces. When she sees who her new prisoners are, the rebel princess is delighted and demands that they be tied up and carried into the city so that they can witness the glorious victory of her insurgent forces. And so, two princesses approach the city center from opposite direction, one joyously at the head of her army, the other in tears as she approaches her wedding altar and contemplates her mother's sex advice. Ugh... To be continued. Then we get a backup story. Tales of Tamaran. Blackfire. Written by Marv Wolfman. Trotted by Dick Giordano. Inked by Dick Giordano. Lettered by Albert de Guzman. Colored by Adrienne Roy. And edited by Marv Wolfman. This story takes place after Blackfire's fight with her sister when everyone thought she was dead. Turns out, she wasn't dead. Yeah, no shit. Instead, she was just super bummed out and also blinded. She was ready to throw in the towel and die, but a dude named Dorion saved her life 
and then gave her some survivalist training and taught her to use her hearing and sense of smell to stab wild animals. Naturally, during the course of this super romantic animal cruelty training montage, the two fell in love. Aww. Commander had some kind of a mental block and couldn't blast magical space fire out of her hands. Door Ion figured that if she got angry enough, she might be able to break out of her funk, but no matter how much he tried to piss her off, no magic space fire blast resulted. Then, one night, Commander woke up alone. She cried out for Dor Ion, and in a weakened voice from far off, he responded that they'd been ambushed by bounty hunters in the night, and he was dying. With his final breath, he begged her to avenge his death. Enraged, Blackfire used her new training to seek out her lover's killer. Relentlessly, she stalked him through the night, until finally she tracked him down and fired a deadly space-fire blast in his direction. Triumphantly, she approached her dying prey to gloat, only to hear Dorion's voice say, Gotcha. Told you you could do Starbolts. Nice job. Anyway, that's the end of me. Now go take over the planet. And with those final words, Dorion died. With tears in her sightless eyes, Commander vowed that her lover's sacrifice would not be in vain. Someday, she would rule Tamaran. Also, I guess at some point she got her sight back. I'm a little iffy on that part. Still, pretty good prank, Dorion. And as eagle-brained listeners will remember my good-for-many-things brother, Cory was banished to the Phantom Zone for pulling the tag off of a Kryptonian mattress. Now, since then, he managed to escape the Phantom Zone and tried to hitchhike back home, but wouldn't you know it, ended up on a spaceship bound for the vegan system. Bereft of cheese and lost in space, Cory was still able to find a portal through which to communicate with us. Cory, how's it going? Hey, it's, uh, um, it's going better than expected, you know? I'm kind of starting to look at this as, rather than a series of mishaps or mistakes, a uh, way to travel for free. Oh, nice. That's a very positive way of looking at things. I've got some comfortable surroundings. Uh, I've got this nice portal. So, yeah, can't complain. How about you? Oh, pretty good. Yeah, I know. Okay, I got my end of the portal. And, you know, other than that, still, you know, dealing with this weird... Mad Libs apocalypse that seems to be going on. Oh my goodness, yeah. But enough of that nonsense. Let's talk about a comic book, shall we? Oh, yes. Yes, we shall. Speaking of nonsense, we actually had to read two comic books for this one. Yep. I initially just read New Teen Titans number 16, and when I first opened it, I was like, oh, what the fuck is going on? I was able to mostly figure it out through context, but I felt like I spent at least the first half of the comic book trying to catch up. So I suggested to you that before you read it, you read Omega Men number 34. But after reading Omega Men 34, I still feel like there was a little bit of a disconnect, and I still felt like I was somehow needing some catch-up to do. How did you feel about it? Yeah, I was glad for sure that you gave me the heads up. It did lead me to wonder if that was a common thing or still is a common thing in modern comics to if I guess if part of the creative team is shared between two storylines and there's some overlap to occasionally just be like, um, see this totally other comic for how this issue of the first one gets resolved. 
So I think if anything, it's probably a bit more common. Uh, it's often done in the course of like large crossover events. Each company, both Marvel and DC, will usually have one big summer-long event. But I think in general, they have just become more common, uh, which is frustrating to a lot of people who are readers and not just collectors, because it means you have to, in order to get the full story, buy other comics that you normally wouldn't, which is, I think, part of the idea behind it. Mm. I think back then it was a little bit less common. We saw an early example of it when we covered the Avengers Defenders War a while ago, but it didn't really start to be much of a thing until I think the X-Men were one of the books that uh, started doing that more, where they would have, through all the X titles, there would be various big crossover events. I think the Mutant Massacre storyline was the first time it started to be like a big regular thing, and that one made a lot of money, so they kept going with it. But what's interesting about that, as opposed to this issue, and as frustrating as those could be, I feel like those were a little bit more cohesive. With this one, I still felt like there was maybe a two or three page chunk that seemed like it was missing. Like the Omega Men issue ends with they're about to start fighting, but the Teen Titans are pretty reluctant and mostly are doing it to try to protect the Omega Men from themselves. And this one picks up middle of a full battle in which both sides are kind of out for blood. And I get that that's mostly the work of shiny reverse space Jesus, but it was one of a few things that felt like, oh, I wish there was maybe some better communication between the writers. It seems like maybe Wolfman had a synopsis of the plot that Todd Klein was working with for the Omega Men, but maybe not some of the details. And so it made for some things that didn't quite match up. Like, when we get back to the new Teen Titans title, it seems like Starfire thinks that her brother is an imposter, and that didn't really come up in the Omega Men at all. Yeah, not that he was an imposter, but the last thing that she says to him in the Omega Men is basically like, you don't know what you're saying? That he's definitely had his, his brain messed with by the psionics, or whoever it was. Right, but not that he's a different person, which seems to be the impression that she has in New Teen Titans. Yep. And I think part of the issue there is that generally, if you have a crossover event, you will have a common editor between the books who will be keeping an eye out for things like that. And at this point, Wolfman was his own editor, or what I think seems to be more and more the case, there just wasn't an editor. Yeah, I, I, I noticed that, that there was, a, I guess, narrative disconnect between the two stories. I was thinking that Wolfman in the 80s, I wonder to what extent he is analogous to like Pacino in the 90s. Like, as a result of his success, people don't feel like they can give him any negative feedback or tell him what to do. At this point, he's right off of the heels of Crisis on Infinite Earth. That was hugely successful. Teen Titans is like their bestseller. Like, is him deciding he's not going to listen to any editor, like him being like, so I'm only going to talk quiet, oh, really loud from now on? Hooah! This is his uh, Scent of a Woman era? <laughs> yeah, this is his Scent of a Woman era, and it makes me nervous. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Like, I get it. In the mid-90s, I'm not going to tell Al Pacino, tone it down a little bit. I know more about acting than you if I'm a young director. And I feel like maybe nobody at DC is, like, going to tell Wolfman, hey, this doesn't make sense, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Well, 
to be fair, it became a wildly successful, I don't know if you call it a franchise, but, you know, series. Yeah. With, if you historically go back and say, listen to our podcast from when we <laughs> first started, it's a little tricky to wring sense out of it. Good point. One of the other, for me, really noticeable differences was, I don't know if it's the inks or what part of the drawing process was different. It's a different penciler. This is Chuck Patton. And yeah, it was pretty noticeable, especially in the first couple of pages. I really like Chuck Patton's work in general. I think he's a really good artist. Uh, We've talked about him a little bit on the show before because he's done some fill-in issues of the Teen Titans before. But in general, the art for this issue was the first issue since the changeover to the more prestige format that didn't seem special, really. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Some of the drawings, even like the background stuff, when there's these giant complicated backgrounds, I'm fine with it being a little... I guess, sketchy, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. But even the the main characters in a lot of places, like you can see, like if you're drawing with a an ink pen on a some, like a, a paper that absorbs a lot and you stop for a second, there's like a little like dot where the paper soaks up the ink. Like there's definitely a bunch of that that I'm not used to seeing. It's weird because like I said, I feel like almost all of that is in the first two pages of the book. And it's unfortunate because it really does set the tone for the whole book. So I had the overall impression that I really didn't like the art in this book. But going back and rereading it, I was like, oh, most of this is actually really good still. It really is just those first couple of pages, which is really unfortunate because that's also where there's the disconnect with the storytelling. And it really sets the tone for the book and changes your overall impression of it. Yeah, first impressions and whatnot. But I would argue that throughout the rest of the book, the attention paid to the detail in people's faces, especially, is just not kind of quite up to the the level that I'm accustomed to. Yeah, I get what you mean, especially in like the more wide shot action images. When there's a close up of a character's face, they still look pretty great. But yeah, for the action shots, for the like, what would be like a wide angle lens shot, there is often a little bit sketchier detail, which is weird because that's not something I would associate with Chuck Patton. And the inker is the same. It is still Romeo Tangal. But yeah, it was definitely a kind of jarring difference because the Omega Men issue was drawn by Rich Buckler and was really gorgeous, too. Yeah. Yeah. That was so interesting, actually, to get this different take on these characters that we've spent so much time with. Yeah, I enjoyed seeing too. Uh, I hadn't realized that Todd Klein, who we've seen as a letterer on the new Teen Titans, was writing the Omega Men at this point. And I felt like he did a really good job. Yeah, it was it was good. Definite change of pace. Ryan Durer is so much more happy-go-lucky than the rest of his family, I feel like. Yeah, I'm starting to like the guy. Although I am still kind of curious. In the opening scene, we see him flying around, and he has the same flying technique that the rest of his family does, which is that his hair turns into magic space fire, which I guess is his means of propulsion. But he's just got a little space jerry curl. How is he able to keep a full set of steam going? I I guess it's a technique rather than volume. Yeah, I mean, we don't see him flying for extended periods of time. Maybe because of that, he can just go for short bursts. Yeah, could be. You got to grow it out if you want to have a a long-distance flight. Makes sense. 
So before we get into the new Teen Titans title, let's just talk about Omega Men number 34 a little bit. It picks up. We are in a very different place with the Omega Men than the last time we saw them back in the new Teen Titans annual number one. They seem to have mostly a different cast of characters. What were your general thoughts on the Omega Men? So again, with this first impressions thing, the cover painting is gorgeous. And I was like, oh man, this is going to be awesome mm-hmm. based on that. And then it was it was good. It was an enjoyable story, but it, it wasn't quite as awesome as I assumed it was going to be based on the really cool cover. Yeah, the cover is by a guy named Sean McManus, and it's really good. It reminds me a little bit of like Phil Foglio's art from the illustrations of the uh, Another Fine Myth series. <laughs> wow. Yeah, like a little bit cartoony, but also painted in a weird combination of like realistic and cartoonish uh, in, in a way that was weird to see, but that I really liked. Yeah, and for me especially, the like the perspective's really cool. The Omega Men are in their spaceship looking out the space glass windows and are all super startled because Starfire has like flown up and is banging on the glass or about to break through it. And she looks kind of more alien and ferocious than I think I've ever seen her portrayed. Yeah, it's a neat picture. Yeah, so basically the story that we pick up on or the state that we find the Omega Men in, we see that shiny reverse space Jesus has totally lost his shit. I'd set him at probably three and a half rats and maybe 15 capital A's. <laughs> 15 or 20, yeah. Yeah, he, he's up there. Uh, we see that Primus who had previously been kind of just a generic white guy team leader, now has a Sting from Dune haircut mm-hmm. and uh, has a spaceship as his brain roommate. Mm-hmm. Tigor and Scary Parrot Lady from Zoobly Zoo are in some kind of a space jail or something, and Parrot Lady is looking kind of rough. Mm-hmm. Space Witch, uh, or Callista, I think her name is, she seems fine. There's a green man named Green Man, who we don't really get that much information about other than that. There is a pink-haired lady who is dating Ryan Durr and uh, blames him for burning her leg in a way that I guess might be fatal, even though it was pretty clearly shiny reverse space Jesus who did the leg burning. Mm Mm-hmm. And we see that Blackfire has told Shiny Reverse Space Jesus to tell Starfire's family that the Omega Men are all wackadoo. Yep. And it ends with the, as I said, with the Omega Men and the Teen Titans about to mix it up. I do love their crash landing in the temple on Tamaran, and they accidentally fly into this giant flaming monument that Coriander's dad had erected just previously. Yeah, it looks like it's just going to nudge it and then the whole column falls over. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Oh, Omega Men. Way to make an entrance. Indeed. Real quick before we move on, I do want to point out this. I don't know if it's a bit of throwaway dialogue or it ties into some other Omega Men stuff that was happening where there's just basically like two or three panels of these super goofy extraterrestrials who are talking about, I don't know, busting out on their own and locking horns with the real world. It seemed to me like it was in the space jail that Tigor and Scary Parrot Lady were in. They were having some kind of a space jail election. 
maybe? Oh, like jail gangs. Yeah, something like that. They were trying to elect a space jail president. That makes sense. But yeah, I know the dialogue you're talking about. It, it's uh, it's really something. It is some delightfully authentic space nonsense. Yep. So Reet can't put on mind mufflers. Need our own leader. Wouldn't Dorg make a smooth up fronter, though? Wouldn't he? Dorg is so racking them up, Reet. Shugs. Thanks, Wally. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty good. I guess Shugs is like space talk for, oh, shucks. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, no voiceless Veller plosives in space. <laughs> yeah, Shugs. Thanks, Wally. He's like a goat face looking dude wearing swim goggles and a graduation robe. <laughs> and if he's in space jail, then perhaps he's a goat face killer. Oh. Sorry. You have to put in the rim shot there. Okay. Once the Teen Titans and the Omega Men are, like, in the middle of their pitched battle, we see two main points that end up resolving it, which both relate to Space Witch from the Omega Men doing her main bit, which is, I guess, you see a vision of your greatest heart's desire. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is something that we've seen Wolfman employ before. In the really early issues, that was what uh, Deathstroke's other son, the Ravager, Raven granted him solace by seeing his greatest desire, which was just a bunch of dead Teen Titans. Yeah. And Raven, I believe, did that again when she talked to Mentos the first time he showed up. Maybe not her greatest desire, but she pretended to be his dead wife and was like, hey, buddy, chill out. Mm-hmm. We see that employed twice, and we see that both cases, it's Jericho sees a vision of his dad, Deathstroke, wanting to give him a hug and tell him he loves him. And then Jericho ends up taking over Space Witch's body and using it to make shiny reverse Space Jesus see a vision of his mom saying that, hey, it's cool, we can hug and you can stop murdering people, I guess. Mm-hmm. It seems like. There is a lot in terms of running themes of unresolved parent issues with the Teen Titans. Between having two major characters have their parents telling them that they love them be their greatest desire, this issue seemed like it was maybe three monologues about American exceptionalism away from being an Aaron Sorkin script. (laughs) Yeah. I would like it if somebody... Because you you see the, like, your greatest desire being fulfilled. It would have been kind of nice if Jericho just saw, like, a kiddie pool full of ice cream or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Some free sodas and a guitar. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, ooh, that looks fun. Yeah. It's a lot of of mommy and daddy stuff. Yeah. And, I mean, we saw that a couple of issues ago, too, with Arella's deal with Raven and Steve Dayton's deal with Beast Boy. The orphans on the team seem like they got it going pretty good for themselves these days. Mm-hmm. And then Starfire, of course, her relationship with her dad, who keeps kind of Ugh. pawning her off to placate whatever, to try and achieve peace. Yeah. It, it, it really is like his one diplomatic move mm-hmm. is fuck over my daughter. Yeah. I gotta say, those guys did a really bad job parenting because Commander is just awful. And then... The other two kids got a bad deal out of it, too. Yeah. 
It's interesting you mentioned Commander being just awful, because in general, you're totally right. And up until this point, she had been completely portrayed as being just flat out, we can write her off as evil, totally irredeemable character. This issue goes a little way towards humanizing her, not just in the epilogue story about Commander, which, just really briefly, that story is that um, some dude named Dorian uh, gave her some daredevil training and then tricked her into taking her murder medicine. Like, tricks her into killing him, and it's like, see? You're pretty great. You can still murder people. Yeah. That was the worst. If I'm ever lacking motivation... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to promise not to trick me into killing you or anybody else I care about. Mm, I try not to deal in absolutes, but I'll do my best not to do that. Oh, that's a little weak. <laughs> All right, fine. I promise not to trick you into murdering me. Okay, thank you. Just well, you made me promise not to uh, not to kill you if I thought you were a zombie. That one time. Okay, fair enough. Well, now we're even. Okay, <laughs> but. Yeah, in in portraying her love story with Dorian, and also in the course of this issue, having it be that she feels that she needs to be strong and she has some kind of a goal that she believes in, it's like they're, I don't know, making her more of a noble villain. And I'm wondering if this story is going to end with her being the leader of Tamaran and that being kind of a happy ending. Oh, wow. I would be surprised if they were able to to pull that off, but that that would be pretty interesting. I mean, they've done a really good job making it be that Starfire's dad should not be in charge of this planet. Like, that seems to be pretty much a consensus opinion of everybody in the issue. It does, but at the same time, I do feel like they went through pains to make it apparent how creepily into the death of her siblings Commander is to the degree that she says she's getting um, warm several (laughs) times thinking about it. Yeah. Which sounded a little odd to me. Yeah, there's some weird stuff going on on Tamaran. Mm -hmm. None weirder than Ryan Durr learning American Sign Language from half-watching a segment of Sesame Street. I, yeah. It was f- funny because I think that maybe it was on the, the next page where he explains it was Big Bird. But yeah, that was my first thought. I actually looked away for a second. I was like, what show could he have been watching? <laughs> well, he explains that it was some kind of a yellow-beaked beast that taught me this. It's like, okay, wait a minute. You weren't paying enough attention to learn Big Bird's name, but you learned all of sign language from that? Well, he learned a few a few symbols. He had to go get uh, help from Dick to translate later. Okay, I think I missed that. I thought he was just able to converse with Jericho after that. Speaking of things being different on Tamaran, I was quite surprised with the speed at which... Taria, um, Karas's lover. Oh, yeah. I've been calling her Tariai, but it could be whatever. T-A-R-Y-I-A. Yeah. She doesn't have a uh, apostrophe. It's very confusing. Yeah. I guess maybe she hasn't earned hers. She's mm. like lower caste system. Well, maybe that's why she was so willing to be like, I love you, but you should, you should totally bang Starfire. Dude, yeah. Th- that was so abrupt. 
that it made me like uncomfortable <laughs> with the way that that whole scene unfolded. There was a fair amount about like the nature of the relationship that people expect Starfire and Captain Papadopoulos to have. Like she's like, "Well, look, I'm going to go back to Earth. We'll get married, but that'll be the end of it." But everybody else is just like, "Oh no, we understand. It'll be a marriage of convenience. We don't expect you to love each other. You guys will be boning though." You got to boink a lot. Like, a lot. And maybe you'll start liking each other, but you guys gots to fuck. It is cold at night. <laughs> Her mom's like, hey, it's cold. <laughs> yeah. Like that really creepy Christmas song. <laughs> yeah, she's just like, can I give you some wedding advice? Look, it's cold. You guys are gonna have to fuck. And maybe you'll like it. Maybe you'll get used to it. Maybe you'll grow <laughs> to tolerate it. Ugh. If you find yourself liking it, lean into that. Yeah, bad parenting. <laughs> well, okay, just I, while we're on the topic of Tamaranian wedding culture, this is definitely going to come up to an extent of the sartorially speaking, but her wedding attire, the top is basically Princess Leia's bikini from Return of the Jedi. Mm-hmm. She's got some like decorative like space bug antennas coming off of the top. Mm-hmm. But the part that was most alarming to me is we've seen this before and we see it on some other Tamaranians and Trigon had a similar thing. But the uh, the like peekaboo crotch curtain that is just draped in front of her junk. You know, I found myself wondering if there has been any culture here on Earth that uses these ankle length loincloths and how people are able to wear them without really hurting themselves. Well, what specifically struck me about this is that that is her wedding outfit. Is that her wedding veil? Oh. Is Captain Papadopoulos supposed to lift the veil to kiss the bride? Oh. (laughs) It's how wedding veils work. I don't know how Tamaran is. Clearly, they are a much more open about their sexuality culture. Whoa. Yeah, I don't know. Okay. It's possible, I I guess. But like her mom's got the, the same sort of get up and her one of her bridesmaids does too, so I don't know if that makes things better or much, much worse. I mean not exactly the same, but they are like very long, skinny loin loincloth type curtains. Loin curtains. I prefer peekaboo crotch curtains. Oh, okay, okay. Just trying to keep it classy. Are you implying that I'm not? <laughs> <laughs> I also noticed that when Dick and Jericho are getting their tour of Tamaran from Ryan, for a people who hate farming as much as they do, Tamaranians are pretty proud of their farming. Well, keep in mind the tour guide is Ryander, who has been away for quite some time. Okay, and maybe he has like the sheltered life of this is what my family told me we as Tamaranians are proud of. But he goes out of their way to point out like, look, we have all of these fruits that and vegetables that we export. I'll show you those. And we have all of these amazing animals that we export to other planets. Dude, that's some 4-H shit. Like, you're doing farming, and we saw in the earlier issues, like, the biggest insult you can have on Tamaran is to be called a farmer. Also, there's not a lot of this reading the audience thing that he's he's got down. He's super excited talking about plants and animals and 
both Dick and Joey look miserable and pissed off. Well, to be fair, I think that's kind of Dick's default setting at this point. That just looks normal to see him scowl. Yeah. Yeah, he's just scowly and pissed off still about the whole uh, Starfire getting married thing. Jericho, I think, also has what his default setting is, which is like Tom Selleck-esque concerned eyeballs. He seems like if he could talk, he would constantly just be saying, Hey. 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 Hey, Gibbs! <laughs> Corey, if you're going to do the Magnum P.I. voice, do it right. It's... Higgins? <laughs> Dude, he needs a mustache. Jericho? Yeah, you should drop those mutton chops and get a, get himself a Magnum P.I. stash. I think that'd be a pretty good look. I don't think drop the the chops, though. I say go full Lemmy, have the mm. mustache connect to the mutton chops. No, no, no. Either way, you're right. He should have a mustache. That's the important thing that we agree on. If we've learned nothing else from this issue. <laughs> it's that Jericho should have a mustache. Mm -hmm. Come on, Wolfman, you coward. <laughs> Write him a mustache. Speaking of mustaches, there's just one dude I wanted to point out on page 18. He's like a background character, but he's got like a Fu Manchu style mustache, like a handlebar mustache that's grown super long, but it's also very thick. It's, it's impressive. Let me take... Oh, man. Yeah, that guy is walrusing hard. Oh, yeah. that's. I hadn't heard that term before. Did people say that, or did you just say that? I don't know. Oh, okay. But yeah, like, the dude behind him is walrusing a little bit. Mm -hmm. But yeah, dude in front of him is, like, Crosby and a half. Yeah, he's chief chief walrus. Major, major walrus. Yeah, that is impressive. There are some, some impressive hair of... A number of varieties in this issue, as you would expect on Tamaran. Mm -hmm. I was just going to say, it's like if all the like peak hair metal left Sunset Strip and joined Science Fiction Army, that's kind of where we're at with these guys. It's a combination, though. It's like the 70s facial hair with the 80s hair metal, head hair. And so it's like, yeah, because by the like during the glam rock era, I don't feel like there was a lot of beards and mustaches. I, I feel like that's more of a 70s thing. But you have like the full on glam rock like haircuts, but with the 70s fog hat mustaches. It's quite a thing. It's a it's a good combo. I, I like that. I do, too. Man, hair business and Tamaran must be booming. Oh, hell yeah. Well, we saw in the last episode, they have those those fancy high-tech hair dryers. Yeah, cordless. Yeah, in all of their finer spaceships. Yep. We talked very, very briefly about the end story with Princess Commander, you know, being forced to take her murder medicine. Uh, I just wanted to say I really enjoyed the art in that backup story. It's by Dick Giordano, who I know mostly as an inker, and in this he did pencils and inks, and I thought it was just really nice. Yeah, well done. Colorful. Lots of action. Yeah, at this point, I think he was vice president of DC as well. But yeah, he's one of my favorite inkers, and it was nice to see him do that kind of work. What did you think about that story in general? Well, I thought Dor Ion was a real garbage person. How so? I think tricking anybody into murdering you when you know that they love you because you want them to be able to murder more people is a bad move. 
I guess when you put it that way, that's fair. Thanks. I do like the training montage, though. That was pretty good. Yeah, it was pretty fun. Like, he he gave her the full daredevil business. Except for the part where he's like, and then you grab the, I don't know if it's a like a, a Chinese-crested dog or like a Mexican hairless dog, but some dog that looks kind of like one of those. <laughs> it's like, and then you grab the small dog and put it in a headlock and stab it with a sharp stick. I was like, oh, really? You don't need to do that. Yeah, that's not so cool. So I deducted points for that. I think that's fair. <laughs> so overall, what would you rate that montage like seven and a half? Out of uh, 10? Let's say out of 11. <laughs> Let's see. So seven and a half out of 11. That's like a like a D plus. Is it? Uh, Let's call that a gentleman C. <laughs> yeah, I'd say that's good. Passing grade, but, you know, improvement needed. <laughs> Improvement needed in the area of less dog murder, please. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good call. Well, are you ready to get into the minutia? Yes. Yes, I am. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Cory eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, we touched on it a little bit, but sartorially speaking... Which elements of fashion did you feel were most noteworthy in this issue? Oh, man. Where to begin? There's so much. There is so much. I really appreciated the 80s-ness of a lot of this. And I guess kind of 70s, 80s-ness. Especially the little, I don't know if you would call it fringe or like strings or whatever that is attached to a lot of people's outfits. Noticeably Joe's goofy getup. Um, an example of that's <laughs> on page five. I know exactly what you're talking about. I looked at that as Jericho playing a game of two-nipple Monty. (laughs) I feel like they noticed his reluctance to put on a shirt in the last issue, and so they gave him some pasties. (laughs) And, like, it looks like he's got some pasties that have, like, little tassels on them. And he's like, okay, fine, but I'm going to put those a little bit higher up on my shoulder, and then I'll put three tasselless pasties across my chest so where's the nipples i'm from another planet you guys don't know Mm -hmm. but then by page 12 he's just had enough of it and he's back to just the collar (laughs) yeah like these pasties are uncomfortable i'm removing them (laughs) i'm taking these pasties off my shoulder i'm unable to twirl them it's just a lot more work (laughs) (laughs) yeah goofy yeah i also really liked dick's battle armor He went back to just the Speedos and shoulder harness later on in the issue. Mm -hmm. But when he's fighting the Omega Men, he's got some kick-ass, like, metal shoulder pads and a full red tunic. And it's very, very Robin-looking. And that's kind of driven home by him talking later on in the issue about how he was getting over thinking of himself as being just Batman's sidekick. It seems like he's maybe emotionally regressing a little bit in this issue, and I'm wondering if maybe part of that is being in his old outfit. Mm. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. It's got kind of a, I don't know, Masters of the Universe or almost X-Men-like belt connecting the giant shoulder pads with a little X-forming suspenders with a release button in the middle. Mm-hmm. What do you think the release button does? I think it releases the shoulder pads. Oh, I was wondering if that's what happened to his shirt. 
Like, if that somehow has the shirt roll back up into the shoulder pads. Oh, well, they do have space technology, so that's probably the case. It's like a instantly convertible shirt. Yeah, like the cord on a vacuum cleaner. Yeah, or uh, the ring that the Kid Flash had. Yeah, exactly. Vacuum cord cleaner ring. Some of the background characters, and we're not going to have time to talk about all of them, so I just picked my absolute favorite. Are you going Space Garters? I am going with Cool Robo Space Lion. Uh, It's on page 14. Oh, I had that that dude, too. I called him uh, Goggles Man. Yeah, he's fucking rad looking. Mm -hmm. He looks like a robot space lion. He has what we were talking about with the mustache that connects to the mutton chops, but like with a full shag on all of that and just the bare chin. Plus, he's got some goggles that have little like almost lion ears on top of them. Mm -hmm. He kind of looks like the cowardly lion gutted the Tin Man and used him as armor. And he just looks cool as fuck. Mm -hmm. I don't even know how you get the head hair to merge with the face hair like that. That's impressive. He must have some kind of a kick-ass beard conditioner, because normally face hair does not come in that flowy and luxurious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm talking to the Gibbons brothers. Wait, who? The uh, ZZ Top guys. Oh, I thought you meant actual Gibbons. Oh, he, he does look like he could be more primate in his hair. Just a thought. Also, I think only one of the guys from ZZ Top was named Gibbons, and ironically, it was the one who wasn't a Gibbon. Just like the drummer was the only one without a beard and his last name was Beard. Who else did you want to talk about sartorially? And the scene in which on it's on page 19 where Coriander is getting ready for her wedding. Mm-hmm. One of the, I guess it would be like a bridesmaid, has what I describe as space garters that are kind of like on the outside of her outfit. Yeah, the bridesmaids have some pretty cool outfits going on for themselves. I see the space garters you're talking about, and the one without the space garters has some fun embroidery on the cuff of her, like, high-heeled stiletto boot. Mm-hmm. There's some good outfits. Yeah, and, and that one's hair, too. It's, again, getting back to the 80s metal thing, it's like a real Lita Ford big hair look. Yeah, it's like if Lita Ford lived in Texas, maybe. Like, that is some, like, seriously big 80s hair. Mm-hmm. It's impressive. Starfire's mom has got a kind of jewel-encrusted, what would you call that, like a thing that goes around your forehead and your face, but in front of your hair, except your bangs stick out through it thing? Yeah, like a face mask tiara? Yeah, and then that's offset by her green robes and uh, a huge green jewel, I guess, between her, her boobs. Yep, it's a good look. Very striking. Nice look for a space mom on her daughter's wedding day. There was a bit of competition for me on this one, but who did you have as president of the drama club? Which character in this book acted, or rather, overacted, in the most dramatic fashion in this issue? Yeah, for me, this one was pretty clear, although there was some competition. I I had Oron. Shiny Space Jeebus. Oh, I didn't even have him in the competition. The reason that I have him as the winner is because on page three, when, you know, he's being shot full of space power by Commander, he's kind of floating in air and writhing in emotional pain. Mm. And maybe also regular pain. There's that. There's a few other scenes where 
he's just striking such a pose that it was impossible for me not to choose him. I can understand that. For me, it came down to Starfire or Dick. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand they both have a lot to feel feelings about, but after Dick gives her a little ultimatum, we see that Starfire blows up a mountain with her emotions, which definitely puts her in contention. But to me, it does not beat Dick making sure that he has the perfect walking away line, which is what triggers the mountainous explosion. Starfire says, It's to save millions of lives. You've got to understand. I can't do anything about it. And he says, Yes, you can. You can tell your father no. But I don't think you will. And then he just walks away. And that just seems like such a practiced line. And the idea of having the dramatic walking away line. I say this as somebody who, I am embarrassed to say, has has had some dramatic walking away lines in my past. This spoke to my, uh, my adolescent <laughs> self, who I remember having an argument with my dad that I ended by saying, Why don't you just leave? You're good at that. Oh, dang. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure what after-school special I lifted that from, but it was very satisfying. That's a zinger. Yep. So. I think I like, uh, you could have had filet mignon (laughs) better. (laughs) That was a good. (laughs) Yes, that was something that I did say to somebody and then dramatically walked away after (laughs) being dumped. I'm not entirely sure what I meant by that. I don't have the excuse of having been an adolescent at that time. I think I was in my mid-20s, but in my defense, I was pretty drunk at the time. Um, So I speak from experience when I say that the dramatic walking away line is definitely something that can earn you president of the drama club. Yeah, I think so also. And in fact, I feel like Dick kind of had to do that because he was trying to do his super drama thing where in the midst of that fight that they're having he like turns around and throws himself chest first onto a spaceship and looks like he's like beating it with his fist (laughs) (laughs) and starfire gets so annoyed with that she just blows it up (laughs) like he's crying super hard and he turns around and he says marry him and it's over with us and that's when he turns around and like hugs the spaceship shows her his back He's like, no! Blows it up and he goes flying. It's like, shit, I had my one drama walk away line. All right, it's cool. I've got another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he goes, pulls out the big guns. Yeah, when somebody does that, you got no choice. You gotta just blow up a mountain. Yeah, I'm glad it stopped there. Me too. Although I totally would have loved it if he did say, you could have had filet mignon. <laughs> Well, I think it's time we took this party to the Bozone. What instance of one character calling another character a bozo, either literally or metaphorically, did you feel was worthy of highlight? That was a little harder for me in this issue. I scoured it, and I I couldn't find a good insult. So what I did was I wound up picking one from the, the backup story of this issue. Okay. There's a flashback scene to when... Coriander and Commander are having like the underwater wrestle fight with the ga- in the place where there is a lot of explosive gas. Uh huh. <laughs> and uh, Commander basically says, "If you shoot your star bolts in here, you're a fool because you'll blow us all up." 
And so I had her calling her sister a fool as my uh, bozo of the issue. Yeah, I also had trouble finding one initially. I did notice that fool. I think earlier on she calls someone else a fool. But I did find a better insult than that. And that is Ryander describing his evil sister, Commander, and saying, she's far too evil to die so quiet a death. Which, pretty Mm. good. But extra good when you think that the quiet death that he is talking about was her sister starbolting her in an area filled with explosive gas that nearly blew up three planets until Zahal intervened. So that's the death that's too quiet for her. Dang. I guess maybe he may have meant her drowning after that, but still, I mean, like, damn, that's pretty evil. Mm -hmm. Speaking of categories that I had a little bit of trouble finding one for, timestamp. I had the Sesame Street thing, but that's pretty vague because that show was on forever. But I really couldn't find another one. How about you? Yeah, I had that, and then the only other thing I could come up with, and it was it was a bit of a stretch, was Taria's costume, which we had talked about in the previous issue, just because it was so, like, 80s Jane Fonda. Mm. In, you know, in space, but very 80s Jane Fonda. Okay, I think that's fair. Thank you. Every issue of a Teen Titans comic book has an Aqualad, the greatest of Teen Titans, but also a Beast Boy, the worst of Teen Titans. In this issue, who was your Aqualad and who was your Beast Boy? In this issue, for my Aqualad, I went with Joey for doing his best to chill Dick out and to get he and uh, Ryander to get along a little better. Mm -hmm. It's like, hey, let's go take a tour of Tamaran's agriculture. But really, it's one other thing that's more important, I feel like, that he did, which was he is basically the one who stopped the initial fight where uh, shiny Space Jeebus was trying to get everybody to kill each other by saying, hey, hold up a minute, I think something's going on here. And that that was important that he did that. Yeah, I also had Jericho as my favorite. I said using logic in the face of his greatest wish, which was his dad saying he was proud of him and loved him. But he noticed that his dad wanted him to speak, and he's like, wait a minute, my dad knows I can't talk because of shit he did. Oh. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think that was pretty good. He also was a good listener to his friends and his new friend, and was a good space tourist, remembered that there was some space shit he wanted to see. And so, yeah, overall, I had him as my favorite. Conversely, for my Beast Boy, I had Dick. Yeah, my notes for him were, stop being so damn selfish. Yeah, mine were, I get it, but grow the fuck up. Yeah, no, it was a do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do thing. I I think if I were in his shoes, I wouldn't handle things very well. But he did a terrible job. He did a really terrible job. And I feel like from his perspective, given what Starfire has told him, that she needs to get technically married but isn't going to live or stay with the person on her home planet and then will come back with him immediately and will basically never see the guy again. What's the big fucking deal? Yep. He's just like, deal breaker. Yep. It's not like he was privy to all of the talk of, and you guys are definitely going to fuck. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe he had been on Tamarind long enough that he had picked up that that was the general vibe. But, mm-hmm. like, as far as we know, he doesn't even know about that part. He's just, no, can't do it. And I'm going to be a whiny little jerk about it. 
Yep, he even got a spaceship and a mountain blown up on account of his garbage. So, yeah, uh, we are in agreement. Bad job, dick. Two Joeys, two dicks. No waiting. <laughs> Did you know Klingons have two dicks, apparently? What? Yeah, they got, like, uh, backup redundancies for all of their organs, and I believe that extends to their uh, their junk, too. I'm, I, I don't know what to say. You don't really need to say anything. Just oh. thought I'd mention it. Thanks. No problem. Here to help. What was your favorite panel? Let's see. I had a couple choices. One we talked about already. I called it the Three Amigos, two of whom are not having a good time. And, <laughs> and it was on page 16, and it's when they're in the ship. And Ryan Durr is super excited, and he's pointing things out, and both Dick and Joe are looking sad. Yeah, Dick looks pissed. Joe looks concerned. I liked that one. I had as my favorite, I think, the panel directly after that, which we have also talked about, but it is Jericho giving his selickiest eyes, looking so like, hey, hey, buddy, I'm, I'm worried about you. It's just a really nicely drawn panel. I also like, on page three, the first shot of Jericho in his oddly placed pasties outfit, where he looks very apprehensive. I think that was the first panel of it that I was like, oh, that's right, I do like this artist. Because up until then, it had been kind of sketchier in a way that made me wonder if... We talked about earlier that these issues don't have any ads in them. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if, like, maybe given the extra length of it, like, they had to add some extra stuff at the beginning, or they thought there was, like, a different transition that was going. Because the background characters are very sketchily drawn, uh, and the action scene is just, like, not as polished looking. And so that shot of Jericho was the first one in the issue that was just like, oh, okay, that's right, I do like Chuck Patton's art. And also, it was just a cool-looking panel. Yeah, I had... One, it is a bit of a toss-up because we talked about this one already before. It's on page 14. I called it Onward to War. Um, it's the one that had the guy you called the Tiger Man. I called him a Lion Man. I'm sorry, a Lion Man. That makes more sense. He's a robo-space lion. That's right. It does have those kind of sketchily drawn background details, but it's a very dynamic panel with a lot of movement to it, and it does look like they're running right into the viewer uh, on their way to fuck shit up. Yeah, it's super dynamic. I liked that one a lot, too. The other one that's in contention for me is actually in the backup story, and it's one that I call Commander's World, because it looks kind of like the Christina's World Andrew Wyeth painting. It's on page three of the backup story, and it is a injured commander reaching for Dorian as she is reclined, and it's just really nicely drawn. Those are some shiny pants. Yep. Well, Corey, I have but one final question I must put to you. Wapoot! In the year of our Lord, 1987, as we do go from the date of the reprint, and the month of our Lord, March, what was Aqualad probably up to? Wapoot! So, I felt like I needed to make up for the kind of weak timestamp finding that I had, where I basically referenced an outfit that we already talked about in the last issue. So we find Aqualad doing some very 80s things, all of which happened in March of 1987. First of all, I can say that he is going to feel pretty gross 
following this because he has made his way through the better part of a case of Hubba Bubba original bubblegum soda, which was uh. extremely popular <laughs> at that uh. time. And he was listening to what was at the top of the charts on repeat, the inspirational anthemic Living on a Prayer by Bon Jovi. Well, he was putting off doing something which, though he was super excited about and was interesting, there's something else that was more immediately accessible and fun. And so the thing he was putting off was installing IBM's release of PC-DOS version 3.3 on his PC. Instead, he had his old uh, Mac SE fired up and was deeply engrossed in Beyond Dark Castle, um, <laughs> trying to get through all those dungeons and kill all those monsters, drinking his hubba bubble bubble gum while Bon Jovi played in the background. Oh, God. Yeah, even the mention of the idea of hubba bubba soda just makes me want to fucking puke. <laughs> it to me seems like it's one of those things that it should like come with a spittoon. <laughs> Just because you're not uh, supposed to swallow that much bubblegum flavor. I mean, you know, I have a visceral reaction to bubblegum and the very idea of bubblegum. I've never once chewed it in my life. It kind of just grosses me out. So, yeah, the idea of a soda that is flavored with or had, does it have chunks of bubblegum in it? I just saw pictures of the can. I actually never drank it as a kid. Ugh. Um, sounds awful. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I did think, like, whenever rabbits or gum come up, <laughs> or horseradish, <laughs> I'm just like, uh, I don't know if I should use these. But I had to. Sorry, dude. Go for it. Well, it's interesting you should mention one of my greatest fears, which is <laughs> now apparently being forced to drink Hubba Bubba soda, because part of what Aqualad was up to had to do with confronting his fears. You see, Aqualad had been watching some MTV and saw the video for Alice Cooper's The Man Behind the Mask, which was the song that was made for the soundtrack of Friday the 13th Part 6, and that video scared the shit out of him. Much like it scared the shit out of me when I was a lad. And so he was like, you know what? I should face my fear. I should go and meet Alice Cooper and talk to him. And so he did, and they struck up a bit of a friendship. This is... Before March, this actually took place in February of 87, they had a sit-down, and they decided, you know what, we've got actually a fair amount in common. So they planned a couple of activities together, one of which was, in March, they were going to go and see Starlight Express on Broadway, because they were both a big fan of musicals and, and theater and drama. And they were both understandably intrigued by the idea of people on roller skates playing horny trains. But before that, they went and saw some pro wrestling together. And so on February 21st, they went to a taping of WWF superstars, and they got to go backstage because they're both pretty big celebrities. And one of the wrestlers was like, oh, shit, you're Alice Cooper. Can you play a song for me? And Aqualad was like, oh, yeah, I'll go get him a guitar. And Alice Cooper was like, oh, geez, uh, okay, um, I'm not really a guitarist, but uh, uh, oh, 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 okay. But Aqualad went and grabbed a guitar from backstage. Unfortunately, it was the honky-tonk man's gimmicked guitar that was set to explode easily when he hit somebody with it. So not only was Alice Cooper not able to play his tune well, but later that night, the honky-tonk man went looking for it, 
and couldn't find it. So he had to send somebody else to get a replacement for it. And he ended up hitting Jake the Snake Roberts with a real guitar and caused a pretty serious injury that may have shortened Jake the Snake Roberts' career. So Aqualad and Alice Cooper both felt terrible about this. So to make it up to him, on March 29th, they attended WrestleMania 3 and sat in Jake the Snake's corner. Alice Cooper accompanied Jake the Snake Roberts to the ring in this weird little tiny wrestling ring that was on wheels that brought him to the big wrestling ring in the Pontiac Silverdome and uh, was there as his corner man for his fight with the Honky Tonk Man. Did that really happen? Yes. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Wow. And it it really happened that uh, the Honky Tonk Man hit Jake over the back with a guitar that hadn't been rigged to explode properly. uh, And it did cause some injury. (laughs) Oh, man. Wow. Uh, I'm not sure if Alice Cooper was involved with that aspect of it or if Aqualad was, but let's say that they were. It seems likely. Yeah, but no, uh, in the Pontiac Silverdome, Alice Cooper accompanied Jake the Snake Roberts to the ring. Honky Tonk Man actually ended up winning that fight by cheating. But after the match, Alice Cooper and Jake the Snake Roberts attacked the Honky Tonk Man and draped Jake the Snake Snake over him. Damien was the name of the python. Wow. And that is what Aqualad was probably up to in March of 1987. So much 80s. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Corey. Sure. I had a fun time talking to you about this comic book. I did too. Let's hope I can keep finding portals wherever I am. I have the utmost, um, what's the word? Confidence in you. (laughs) That made it sound like I don't. I just had a slight case of aphasia. But I do have a great deal of confidence in you, Corey, both your portal finding ability and otherwise. Well, that's good to know. Thank you so much for joining us, listeners. This has been a real treat. If you'd like to get into touch with us, you can do so at ttwasteland at gmail.com or we can be reached at our post office box at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. We actually got a very nice letter from a listener who is from Connecticut who took some umbrage at the fact that we continually imply that Connecticut is not really part of New England. Oh? So as a peace offering to Mark and any other listeners in Connecticut that we have, I am willing to admit that you are technically part of New England, and I will list a couple of my favorite things about the nutmeg state. First of all, it's called the nutmeg state. That's pretty great. Other than that, the things that I like best about the state mostly relate to its history of whale murder, which just to be clear, I am generally opposed to. That being said, like, I really liked Mystic Seaport growing up, and uh, the Hartford Whalers have a great logo. So there you have it. Th- thanks for writing, Mark. It was it was seriously a very nice letter. Uh, good. Yeah. I, I have a dear friend whose grandparents are, are, are from that from there. <laughs> Some of my best friends are from Connecticut. <laughs> For other ways to get into touch with us, well, there's, uh, there's the internet. We're, we're all up on there. Uh, you can find us on all of the social mediums. There's the, the Facebook, the, the Tweetor, the uh, Tumblr, link them up. Uh, 
Uh, what, what else we got? Instagram. Wait, are we not um, allowed to say the actual names because of some reason? No, I, I don't want to say the actual names unless they pay us money. It's product placement. It's just good business, Corey. Oh, that is true. We haven't made any plugs for a while. Yeah, so, you know, come on. Come on, Facebook or Tweetor. Uh, how about how about you uh, hit us up with a little cash if you want to spread that actual name around? Yeah, we know you giants of social media are listening to our humble show with yeah. bated breath. Yeah, so stop baiting and start start paying. <laughs> oh, um, <laughs> if you would like to leave us a review, I think that's a nice thing for you to do. We got a lovely review recently that, as I suggested, described us as the witch's hair. Uh, so that was that was nice to hear. So yeah, if you'd like to leave us a review, then just go to whatever listening application you're using and type in nice stuff about us because then we'll read it and then we'll feel good about ourselves briefly wouldn't that be fun oh it's the best also more importantly it helps other people find out about the show and uh, see that it's something that's worth listening to so you know thanks for doing that if you would like to support the show monetarily uh, a great way to do that is by visiting us at patreon.com slash tt wasteland if you do you get access to a ton of bonus material uh, i've been making weekly at least weekly uh trying to do it more often than that video reviews of comic books classic and new there is also the monthly podcast that i co-host with lisa called what the duck a podcast most foul but with a w because he's a duck that's the full name of the show where we talk about howard the duck comics from the 70s and there's also a bunch of other bonus material up there there's some extra episodes that Corey and i have recorded and a bunch of other stuff as well but mostly that's just a great way for you to let us know that you like what we're doing and would like us to be able to continue doing it. So thank you so much for doing that. Other than that, you know, just keep on keeping on, you know? And if you're tired of locking horns with the real world, rack them up, Reet. Yeah, I mean, be like <laughs> Dorg. Be a smooth up fronter. Oh, the Dorg. I mean, Dorg is so racking them up, Reet. He's so Reet. He's the readest. This has been a podcast. And now it's done. Bye. Bye. And they knew it. And I have also a great deal of confidence in <laughs> you, listeners. It's, you gotta do it without the pause. <laughs> okay. And I have also a great deal of confidence <laughs> in you. <laughs> uh, uh, you guys are great. Don't listen to him. <laughs> well, I'm saying that they're great, and I have confidence in them. They should listen to me. They should listen to my words, not my tone. You guys are the best audience. Thank you. Sorry, would you mind saying thank you again when I'm not burping? You're welcome. Thank you. No. <laughs> One more try. Thank you. Thank you. All right, cool. I'll put together a comp take of you thanking me, and I will play it to fall asleep.